to share the gospel with somebody and felt that you, you've done all that you can to explain it to them and perhaps you've brought them along to, to meetings at the chapels or, or Christian meetings in some of the contexts where they've heard the gospel and, and you feel they've had every opportunity to understand but it just doesn't seem to get through they just don't seem to see what you see about Jesus and, and try as you might you, you can't get them to get that kind of spiritual understanding I've certainly known this kind of frustration I had a, a lab partner while I was at university and I had lots of opportunities to talk to him about Jesus I was able to bring him along to all kinds of different evangelistic events evangelistic discuss, discussion groups uh, evening meetings at a weekend where we had often some of the best speakers from around Britain come and share the gospel but he just couldn't see why he needed to make a decision to follow Jesus and I just couldn't see what I could do to make him see and perhaps you, you, you've got friends or relatives or colleagues or, or people at work who you feel that about it's not that you haven't had a chance to share but they just don't see and we feel this frustration in many parts of East Asia uh, as some of you are aware we're with OMF International and my responsibility is trying to oversee the missionary work that OMF is doing in the different countries of East Asia and in some of those countries there's a wide open door to get into the country and I'm thinking of places like Japan and Thailand we can have a missionary visa to go to Japan more or less just for the asking no problems, no difficulties getting into that country as a missionary but when it comes to sharing with the Japanese people our missionaries there just struggle to try and make these people see, to understand they're friendly they're polite, the, the Japanese are immensely polite after you've been in Japan for a week Amri and I were in Japan for a week in February of this year you're always bowing, you're always saying thank you and everybody's always bowing back to you and they're always smiling but, but somehow it's very difficult to get through our missionaries in Thailand uh, find a similar thing the Thai again are a very friendly people the Thai smile is nearly always there and, and yet they've shared with me you know I can spend an hour or two sharing the good news with, with a Thai person how Jesus has died for them how God is offering them a free gift and they don't have to work for it because coming from their Buddhist background they're used to, to having to work to get what is good and at the end of it they'll say oh that's wonderful and I'm sure you'll be building up so much merit by doing this and they, they want to tear their hair out and they feel like they're banging their head on a padded brick wall <laughs> it's friendly and comfortable but, but they're just not getting anywhere well the subject that we are looking at today is that of spiritual sight of what it means to see and what happens in the process of seeing the title is Eye Problems because the final story in our passage is a man who was blind who had eye problems but the other characters in our reading 
also had eye problems, spiritual eye problems because they couldn't see. And in our reading there are really two things in focus. There are two miracles, the feeding of the 4,000 and the healing of the blind man, and there are two groups of people, the disciples and the Pharisees. There are other people as well in our reading, but they're more like sort of supporting cast. There's the 4,000, but we don't learn very much about them. They're there to listen to Jesus and to be fed, but the focus is much more on the disciples, as Mark tells his story. Sometimes I think you need to, to look at the Gospels and, and think about them as if they're like a movie. And you know in a movie, the director of the movie takes time to really introduce you to a few characters and to get to know them and to follow their progress through the movie. Now other people come in and out and appear for a scene and, and they play their part but the focus is on these characters that you have got to know and, and what is happening in their lives. And that's what's happening here. And the people who are in focus are the disciples, who we follow fairly much all the time through the Gospels, and the Pharisees who come in from time to time. Uh, but they have a, a, a regular part. And particularly as we look at these two miracles, it's these two groups of people that we're looking at. The first miracle is the feeding of the 4,000. And the first thing that I need to say about it is it's not the same incident as the feeding of the 5,000, which was two chapters earlier. Now, whenever you get two incidents in the Gospels that are somewhat similar, uh, there are some scholars who feel that, well, they must just be the same incident and there's just two different stories about it and the stories have got separate and then brought together as two incidents when it was in fact one. Well, I think we can be confident that this happened twice because when Jesus talked to the disciples he asked them specifically well, how many baskets did you pick up when I fed the 5,000? How many baskets did I pick up when I fed the 4,000? They were clearly two in view. And in fact, anybody who's been involved in itinerant ministry knows that you end up doing similar kind of things many times in different places and saying similar kind of things many times in different places and, and sometimes it's a bit repetitious I remember uh, picking up a bargain when I was in India John Wesley's journals and beginning to read them and when you begin they're great he preaches to a vast crowd and hundreds of people come to the Lord a hundred pages on it's getting very repetitive he's preached to another huge crowd and hundreds have believed and it's, it's all very similar but slightly different and, and that would have been true of the teaching of Jesus and some of the things that Jesus did and that's sometimes where we get slightly different accounts of how he told a parable because he probably told it a dozen, twenty, maybe even fifty times and often slightly changed for different audiences so it's not the same incident and nor is it simply a, a, a repeat doing the same thing for the same group of people. This is slightly different. The 5,000 were fed in a Jewish area. The 4,000 are being fed in a much more Gentile area. And there's perhaps a bit of a picture here of Jesus' ministry progressing from the Jews to the wider world. And some say even in the number 4,000, uh, a kind of hidden reference 
to the four corners of the earth and the good news and the work of Jesus reaching more and more widely. But Jesus does it again for this crowd. He saw their need and he had compassion upon them. He took seven loaves and they ended up with seven basketfuls of leftovers and everybody ate and was satisfied. But the focus really in this story is the disciples. It's interesting, in the feeding of the 5,000, it was the disciples who came to Jesus and said, look, we've got a problem. This time, Jesus actually raises the problem with the disciples. He called his disciples to him and said, look, I've got compassion for these people, but they haven't got anything to eat. And they're too far away from home to go back and eat. And the disciples say, well, we don't know what to do. You're right, it's, it's, it's a long way from Sainsbury's or Safeways or the breadwinner or whatever the Palestinian equivalent was in that day. Now, I think for us reading it, it's, it's difficult to believe that they responded in that way when just two chapters earlier, Jesus had fed 5,000. You, you sort of think, well, surely they say, okay, Lord, you've just got to do it again. And instead they react as, well, we don't know what can be done. Why is it? Why did they react like that? Well, I think if we examine our own hearts and our own experience, we quickly find that we're not too different to the disciples. We are often slow to learn, but quick to forget. And even though it may not be so long since the Lord provided for us, we are quick to doubt that he is able to do it again. When faced with a new spiritual challenge, we tend to forget that what we've experienced in the past and our first reaction is often impossible. It can't be done. It's interesting. Hudson Taylor, the founder of the China Inland Mission, which became the OMF, used to have a saying. He said that often in a work of God there are three, three stages. First it is impossible, second it is difficult, and finally it is done. And often when we're first faced with God, what God wants us to do, it seems impossible. But looking back, it gets done. But usually we don't look back enough to remind ourselves of what God has done in order to be able to see what God can do. But when we do that, we see that many of the things that appear to us as impossible are not impossible for God. In East Asia, one of the, the countries that appears to us, at least if not impossible, but certainly very difficult, is the country of North Korea. Most of the rest of East Asia that was closed has been steadily opening up over the last 20 years. China was once a closed country, but there are now more opportunities in China than we can possibly find people to fill. But North Korea, that's a different situation. North Korea still keeps very high walls, still makes it very difficult to get people into it. And we're praying for that. We're praying that God will make a way in the midst of that situation 
And one of the things that encourages us is looking at what God did in China. Because when the missionaries were thrown out of China in 1950, there were perhaps a million Christians. And many were quite dismayed at what happened. One man even wrote a book called Christian Mission and the Judgment of God because all he could see at that point really was God's judgment in everybody having to leave. Fifty years on, the statisticians argue about how many Christians there are in China and the more pessimistic think there are only 30 million and the more optimistic think there are probably 120 million whatever the number, and it's impossible to get accurate statistics for Christians in China, the growth has been enormous. And God has been at work in a situation which looked impossible to us, but in fact was far from impossible for him. And so that gives us confidence in terms of mission. And I'm sure there are, there are many things that you could relate to which would give you confidence in your own life. But sometimes we need to look back in order to see what he can do in the future. Then the spotlight shifts from the disciples who are struggling to keep in mind what Jesus is doing to the Pharisees who come to him and began to question him and say, we want a sign. And Jesus says, no sign will be given. He's quite adamant, he's quite point blank, there is He's giving no reason to hope here that they will be given a sign. Why not? Well, they didn't want miracles. That wasn't the kind of sign that they had in mind. And anyway, Jesus wasn't the kind of stuntman who performed miracles just to impress people. I think it's important to see when we look at this feeding of the 4,000 that he didn't feed the 4,000 in order to impress them. They were already impressed but by his teaching. He fed the 4,000 because he had compassion for them. Because they were so devoted to his teaching that they'd spent three days with him listening and they'd forgotten about practical things like whether they should have enough food. Um, and now they were beginning to go hungry. And what he did, he did out of compassion rather than anything else. But they weren't looking for a miracle what they wanted was an absolute proof of Jesus' divine authority. Jesus did perform miracles and whether or not the Pharisees had actually seen them, they had certainly heard about them. But they were quick to dismiss them. There were other miracle workers apart from Jesus and miracles could always be attributed to the work of the devil as well as to the work of God. What they wanted was some kind of proof that made it absolute, absolutely, completely, incontrovertibly clear that Jesus was from God. They wanted God to personally step in and confirm Jesus' credibility. And Jesus says, no, I will not give you that kind of proof. Why not? Wouldn't that solve a lot of things if, if that happened? Well, the reason he does that is because that is not the way to faith. There will be a day 
when God shows the whole world that Jesus is Lord and that will be so unmistakable it will be so impossible to contradict that that everybody will fall on their knees and say yes Jesus is Lord but that won't be the kind of loving following of Jesus that the Lord is looking for that will just be you know we just can't help ourselves at that point every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord but it won't be the kind of confession that Jesus Jesus is looking for one reason why he was very unhappy with the Pharisees why he sighed deeply in his spirit as they came to him was because their demand for a sign came not from a seeking for the truth but came from their own desire to find excuses to reject the truth they were not really looking for proofs of who Jesus was but they were looking for excuses not to believe and and I can relate to this because my own testimony uh, when I became a Christian which I did when I was at school here in Edinburgh about the age of 17 was that a a significant part of my pilgrimage was, was discussing issues with a Christian friend and, and we used to argue about all kinds of different aspects of the Christian faith whether we could trust the Bible whether Jesus rose from the dead and, and all those kinds of important issues but I know looking back that I reached a point where I was no longer arguing because I didn't understand I was no longer arguing because I couldn't believe inwardly I was convinced that this was the truth that Jesus was who he claimed to be and my arguments were just a defence to hold Jesus at a distance to have an excuse not to believe I was good at arguing I could still win the arguments often with my friend but inside there was another argument going on and that was whether I would submit to Jesus and whether I would follow Jesus and whether I would begin a lifelong pilgrimage with him of letting him show me the truth which thankfully I did because it's that kind of pilgrimage that Jesus wants to engage us in not an absolute incontrovertible proof that makes us fall to our knees but coming to him to see the truth and being slowly led on deeper and deeper into understanding of the truth the truth about him, the truth about life the truth that is worth living for and what we see through this passage is the disciples struggling to understand the truth and this comes out particularly in the next section where Jesus talks to them about the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod and these disciples, it's very easy I think for us to look at them and say oh these guys, they're they're, they're so stupid here is Jesus coming to them with a spiritual lesson and all they can think about is the fact that they didn't pack their sandwiches we haven't got any bread you know, the same problem we had yesterday there's not enough bread 
uh, and Jesus, he, say, it says he, that he was aware of their discussion and he asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Or your hearts hardened? Do you have ears but fail to see? Uh, eyes but fail to see? Ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve. When I broke the seven loaves for the four thousand, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Seven. They've got all the facts, but, but they can't put it together. They can't understand. They have understood something about Jesus, but they are still on a pilgrimage with Jesus and only bit by bit understanding. Uh, and I feel as you get to the, the end of this little passage and he says, how many baskets? Twelve. How many baskets? Seven. Do you still not understand? I think they didn't know which way to look because they didn't dare claim to understand because then they'd be asked to explain and they couldn't. And they didn't dare admit that they didn't understand but they didn't. And a lot of people are, are sitting O-grades at the moment. Well, I think if they were sitting there O-grade in spiritual understanding, these guys were going to fail because they, they couldn't even begin to answer the question. And then we move from that to the second miracle, the healing of the blind man. And this, this miracle is here for a number of reasons. First and foremost, it points to who Jesus is. And this is what the miracles were, not absolute proofs, but pointers that kept shedding a bit more light on the character and the mission, the purpose of Jesus. In chapter 7, he healed the deaf and the mute. The deaf had heard, the mute had spoken, and now in chapter 8, the blind see. And any good Bible reading Jew would have recognized their echoes of the Old Testament and the promises of the Messiah. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped and then the lame will be able to hear and the mute tongue shout for joy. And they'd have seen more pointers to who Jesus was. But there's something very unusual about this healing because the man is not healed immediately. And I think it is the only healing miracle in any of the Gospels where Jesus doesn't succeed the first time. And in some ways that's probably a, a testimony to its authenticity that this story was recorded for us. Because it seems most unusual that Jesus didn't heal this man completely at what was apparently the first attempt. Why was that? Has Jesus lost his touch? Don't think so. It, it shows, I think, that the way in which Jesus works in our lives is always unique. He doesn't just copy what he's done in one life and do it in the next. Uh, he healed several people who were blind at different points. In one case, he touched a blind man and he was healed. In another case, he spat on the ground and made mud and put mud on the blind man's eyes and he was healed. In this case, he spat directly into the blind man's eyes and he was healed. And each was a different way. And, and Jesus, I'm sure, had his reasons for working in a different way. 
I think it also shows that Jesus does not give up. And sometimes we may feel we, we have come so far in our spiritual pilgrimage, in our understanding, perhaps in God's work of healing in our lives, whether that's physical healing or emotional healing. Jesus does not want to stop. He wants to carry on if the man is ready for the stage two and he is able to carry on. But I think perhaps more than anything else he is using the opportunity of this healing to teach something to the disciples about spiritual seeing not just physical seeing. This healing was not for the multitudes. It's interesting that we read in verse 23 that Jesus very deliberately took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village away from the crowd so it was probably just Jesus the man, maybe the friends who had brought him and the disciples they were the only ones who saw this because this was an acted out message about spiritual seeing that it doesn't always come at once in fact I think in my experience it's very rare that it all comes all at once we have, have moments of revelation when we move forward in our understanding but it's a pilgrimage and we see in part and the disciples at this point in time only saw in part they saw enough to know that it was worth following Jesus they'd seen enough to, to know that they wanted to commit their lives to this man but they hadn't really worked out fully the why, the what for, the who he was. In a sense they saw Jesus like a tree walking in a spiritual way. And, and this healing I think gave them a way of thinking about that, realising perhaps that spiritual seeing comes in stages and they were on a pilgrimage. And you can see here the different stages. The blind, the completely blind, the blindness of the lost. The seeing, the completely seeing, perhaps the perfect sight that we will only have completely in glory. And in between, the partial but improving sight of the saints. And certainly it's been my experience in working with different people, uh, seeing them slowly make unsteady steps towards faith, that understanding comes in stages I remember a, a Bible study in the Philippines that uh, I inherited from another missionary who was going on home assignments and he told me it's terrific just two weeks ago um, we prayed a prayer and everybody in the Bible study accepted the Lord and I thought wow that's great I'll just disciple them so the first Bible study I had with them I said right two weeks ago you made this decision and I looked around the group and there were these blank looks on their faces what decision did we make? none of them seemed to be aware that they had made any decision of significance two weeks ago oh ok well let, let's not worry about that let's, let's get on with the Bible study and as we studied the Bible uh, over probably had that Bible study for 12 or 18 months and probably it was over the next 6 or 9 months for each of them, at a different point, they saw things clearly at last. Uh, one of them was the director of a funeral parlour. Uh, occasionally I would go and 
uh, take a Bible study actually in his funeral parlour and it was interesting to arrive and he would say oh Ian, Ian, come and look at my new coffins Uh, the point for him came when we were studying the parable of the prodigal son and I can remember it was that week it was that study when he saw for somebody else it was when we were studying Cornelius the army captain in Acts the good man who still needed to be saved and for her that was the point at which she suddenly saw and understood because that is the nature usually of a spiritual pilgrimage into understanding that is the nature of spiritual sight and then having seen we, we begin to see more but we still see only in parts the trees become clearer but they're not yet fully visible as people I think Paul gives a very good commentary on the whole issue of spiritual blindness in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 4 when Paul says the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers and it's interesting, we can understand this in, in two ways. One is that Satan is the god of this age. and Perhaps that's the, the way of understanding that most immediately springs to our minds. And he has blinded people so they cannot see or understand the gospel. And when you've tried sharing the gospel with people, you've probably experienced that. There doesn't seem to be you know, deficiency in the explanation, but they still can't understand alternatively some commentators suggest that we should not see Satan as the God of this age as Satan is never called a God anywhere in scripture instead we should understand the phrase the God of this age as referring to those who have made this age their God they have become so preoccupied with material things of this age and because of that have become blind to the unseen things of the spiritual realm they are blind not by misfortune, not by some demonic activity beyond their control, but because they have chosen to make a God of things which are less than God. And I think sometimes that, that when we are trying to share the gospel with people, you, you can put them in three groups. Uh, and I sometimes use this illustration. Perhaps I can, I can ask the three volunteers. Thank you. i just like three men to stand here thank you Tim <laughs> and you're sitting in the front row so perhaps you'd like to come here uh, if I could ask my assistant if you would just stand in a row here and if you could um, blindfold the gentleman in the middle if the gentleman on the right you could just stand there with your eyes open and Tim, if you could stand there with your eyes tight shut. And I'd like you just to imagine that, that these are three types of unsaved people in darkness. And, and I won't ask for it, but we could dim all the lights and everybody would be in darkness. And that is what the Bible says our situation is. 
we are in darkness until somebody comes and shares the gospel and the light is turned on but when the light is turned on which of these three can see? only this gentleman over here on my right, your left he can see he can see and he can sit down thank you very much you're saved <laughs> these two who are left stand as, as types this one over here on the right of those who are blinded who cannot see because there is a blindfold there that comes of the devil so that even though the light shines and it's not until my assistant removed the blindfold yeah, that he can see he can be saved and he can sit down <laughs> and then finally we have just this, this one left the lights are on the blindfolds have been removed but he will not see he is a different type of the kind of person who does not want to see like the Pharisees who were looking for excuses to avoid following Jesus and it's not until God breaks through, breaks into his heart and opens his eyes you can open your eyes and you can be saved and you can sit down thank you very much there are many problems in communicating spiritual understanding people are in darkness but when you switch on the light you find that they are blindfolded when you remove the blindfold you find some of them have their eyes screwed up against the illumination of the good news they don't want to know can we change this? J.I. Packer writes however clear and cogent we may be in presenting the gospel we have no hope of convincing or converting anyone can you or I by our earnest talk break the power of sin over a man's life? no can you or I give life to the spiritually dead? No. Can we hope to convince sinners of the truth of the gospel by patient explanation? No. Can we hope to move men to obey the gospel by any words of entreaty that we may offer? Utter no. Our approach to evangelism is not realistic till we have faced this shattering fact and let it make its proper impact upon us. We can't do it. But Jesus can do it just as he healed the blind man even in stages and in 2 Corinthians in Paul's commentary on spiritual blindness after having talked about people who are blinded by the God of this world Paul writes God who said let light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ God can do it he can break through he can as it were bypass the eyes and go straight for the heart and give that spiritual understanding that spiritual insight that brings faith in Christ and so we see here these disciples slowly beginning to understand but oh ever so slowly but I think if we examine ourselves so like us the Pharisees not wanting to see and finding excuses not to and as we come to an end I just want to ask where are you at this morning 
Are you like one of the crowd? The crowd hungry for the word of God. Hungry enough to to learn about the word of God that they forgot about their food. Perhaps you think the preacher is going on too long but you should be hungry for the word of God and not thinking about your lunch. Perhaps there are a few here who are a bit like the Pharisees. You've actually been resisting spiritual truth. You've actually been making arguments which uh, really, if you're honest, deep down in yourself, they're arguments for not believing rather than real difficulties. I remember once on uh, an evangelistic mission up in Aviemore many years ago having a long discussion with somebody and he wanted Jesus to come back in every generation to do everything all over again before he would believe. But somebody who had a bit more experience than I joined in the conversation and they said, is this a real problem to you? And he looked rather embarrassed and said, well, no, not really. It, it was an excuse against believing rather than a real barrier to belief. Perhaps you feel you are like the disciples, struggling to understand, struggling to see. You can understand, you can see some things of the Christian faith, but you can't understand everything. I think the disciples' example encourages us to keep going, to keep moving on with Jesus, to keep following him, to keep reading his word. Because if we do that, he will keep revealing himself to us. Little by little he will take us forward. And the great encouragement is not in this passage, but it's actually in the next passage, when Jesus asks his disciples, who do you think that I am? And Peter comes out with his confession. He has begun to see who Jesus is and the light has begun to shine in him. The lights have come on. Don't give up, even if things seem somewhat unclear and seem rather fuzzy. Things will become clearer as we continue in pilgrimage with Jesus. And that, I think, is true at the early point of pilgrimaging towards Jesus and in our walk in our Christian lives with Jesus. Sometimes things are not very clear, but they will become clear as we continue with him. And perhaps you're one of those who is struggling to communicate the truth. And I think my word to you this morning would be also from Paul's commentary in 2 Corinthians, where he said in the context of talking about this spiritual blindness, we do not lose heart. And I always suspect when he wrote that, he wrote that against the background of sometimes feeling very much like losing heart and giving up. But he did not give up because he realised that his job was to set forth the truth plainly and that when it came to spiritual insight and understanding that God could do it and God would do it because God loves to reveal himself to us and longs that we might all have understanding and be his followers. Let's pray.